1: Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I love to do a college prospects podcast at the end of December because it's the transition from non-conference to conference schedule, and I love talking with Sam Vicini about that, longtime friend of the podcast, covers the NBA draft for the sporting news, and has been a draft guy for years now and a frequent Real Jam Radio podcast guest. So, We go through the top guys and also who has moved a lot over the course of this non-conference slate. And for those of you who have listened to Sam and I before, we of course get into other things, you know, players in the league, contacts, and everything like that. I really do enjoy the conversation. And this episode is brought to you by Audible. You can go to audible.com slash try now, and you can get a free audiobook with your subscription. This episode runs about an hour and 20 minutes. I hope you enjoy it. Thanks so much for coming on. Yeah, absolutely, Danny. I'm always happy to come on. We are getting close. You can correct me if I'm wrong, but I think we're just on the cusp of the conference season actually starting. And beyond the fact that I love talking prospects basically anytime, one of the ways that this time is interesting is that teams play vastly different non-conference schedules. Some some of them have those tournaments and classics and all that. And where I Mm -hmm. wanted to start was whose stock has really changed over this period of time.
0: Yeah, that's a really interesting thing because I'm actually working on a piece right now for uh, Sporting News to kind of talk about that a little bit. The guy who I would point out first and foremost above all in terms of just kind of his stock rising – would be Luke Kennard at Duke. I mean, he is scoring over 20 points, dishing out, I think, three or four assists a game, grabbing rebounds. He's turned into like an off-ball, like college Steph Curry kind of thing, where he's a really kind of creative ball handler. He is a creative finisher inside. And the shot is obviously the shot. He can knock down that look uh, with like kind of a similar low release point to Curry, basically from all over the floor. He's obviously not the NBA prospect that Curry was just because Steph was just so freaky. But what Kennard's able to do now in terms of getting a shot whenever he wants off the bounce, really moving well off of screens, off of curls, off of little flares, stuff like that, it's really impressive. And he's really become like the kind of offense-only prospect that is probably worth taking in the first round now, just because of uh, the way he is able to diversely affect the offensive game.
1: He's probably, defensively, he's a straight two at this point, isn't he?
0: Yes, I, I think he's a straight two in the NBA, and that's, you know, like I said, like the Curry thing doesn't hold up, in my opinion, just in any Comparison standpoint, but in college, like that's the kind of role he's really playing. He's playing on ball a lot because that Duke team doesn't have a point guard really. And he's just such a ridiculous offensive force right now who... uh, the reason that he's improved so much in my opinion i would say is that he has a really improved his body he's a lot stronger now it seems like even like throughout his core throughout his upper body and throughout his lower body he's able to absorb contact both just like the little stuff when he's dribbling around on the perimeter or like in that 15 foot mid-range spot that he really likes or uh, whenever he's at the rim, he's able to finish now. He's shooting over 60% on his two-pointers, which is really an impressive rate for a kid that's like 6'5", 6'6". Then you look at the jump shot. Obviously, he's just a ridiculous jump shooter. I know he shot like 30-something percent last season, but he is absolutely an absurd jump shooter in every way. I have him at Number twenty on my board right now, defensively, there are going to be concerns he 's just not a good defensive basketball player that 's fine though. Um, not everyone is going to be a great defensive basketball player, and as long as he can continue to knock down shots and also create shots, like he can be a secondary ball handler because he 's a good enough distributor and he 's a good enough ball handler now. Uh, to where I think he's going to be fine in the NBA, regardless of the defensive deficiencies. Just some like quick numbers here. Uh, 65% true shooting percentage, shooting threes on 42% of his shots, only a 9.4 turnover rate, which is actually up from last season, in large part probably just because he's handling the ball a little bit more. But this is a kid who doesn't turn the ball over, shoots a ridiculous rate, 43% from three, efficient inside, and really he's just turned into, like I said, that all-around offensive force that teams could really use off of the bench in the NBA right now.
1: He also benefits from the appalling positional scarcity at both his position specifically, but also his niche, that teams just need players like him who can play off ball, who don't need it in their hands, can catch and shoot. And even if the other stuff doesn't get all the way, like that's that's kind of the line between a backup and a starter for him is probably whether he can be from bad to passable to good, you know, like where yep. he falls in that range. But even at a bad level, I mean, we're seeing this with the Clippers and numerous other teams, just getting guys who can shoot or Oklahoma City, if we want to go in the converse,
0: you can uh, always use them. The, that Oklahoma City backcourt is a nightmare right now. Whenever Russ steps off the floor, it's so bad.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, it's a nightmare in a way but now with the Victor Oladipo's out, you realize how valuable he is, too. And he's valuable in a way that we've seen at various moments this year where A player is more valuable, not as much because of how good they are, though Oladipo is certainly a good player and he's having a nice year, but because of the sheer horribleness of their subs. Yeah, no, exactly. Like you said, like the depth
0: matters. The depth really matters there.
1: I mean, you see teams all around the league that are just trying to get 48 good minutes out of various things. And now we're reaching a a point of surplus value with centers, but almost Mm -hmm. everything else you need that. And if we're talking in terms of offensive niches and variability, Someone who can hit open shots can be of value in a lot of different ways. And also, generally speaking, those players are conducive to stepping up in the case of an injury. Like, there are a lot of guys who are good specialists, but you don't really want to move them beyond their small niche because of their limited skill set. If I had to pick a narrow skill set to move up, it would probably be, at at the two, it would probably be a straight shooter.
0: Yeah, a straight shooter who can... Also just like not be a disaster with the ball in his hands. You know what I mean? Like yeah, you want a guy exactly. who can at least like do something off of a closeout and then also like create a play with a pass because Canard's turned into a really, really good passer. Um, he's always had really good vision, but. He's now turned into a guy who really passes the ball well. There's kind of a difference, right? Like you can make the, you see the plays and you always move the ball and keep the, you know, just flow of the offense moving. Last year, that's what Kennard was. This year, he's turned into a guy who can attack a closeout. And when the defense steps up to him, he can legit make a play for someone else now where that player will be in position to score it's kind of a leap to get to that point and he's taken that leap and i think it's really important
1: there are a lot of guys in the nba who have never making made that leap so it certainly is a benefit there one guy just i i was thinking of off the top of my head as i was kind of going through this because i haven't watched them yet i y'all probably pronounce it wrong but omer yurtsevin is he yeah. is he looking all right since he's gotten back to nc state after that weird suspension
0: yeah, with him, it's pretty tough just because they haven't played anyone yet. Since he's been playing, he's played like three games and his per 40 minutes are fine. He's playing like 20 minutes a game or whatever. But their like schedule, I mean, I'm pulling up who they played right now, it's not pretty. It's like Appalachian State, Fairfield, and McNeese State. So it's difficult to tell where exactly he is. I will say the jump shot's a little bit further along than I thought it was with him. Uh, he looked really good against Fairfield, pretty solid against Appalachian State in that capacity. The rebounding is what it is. He's still solid. He still has tremendous footwork, really solid hands, uh, really good pick-and-roll player. But like you said, like this is a kid still that, you know, he's entering the NBA at kind of a bad time for his own draft stock just because center is so loaded. And this draft isn't really changing that. I mean, there are fewer centers i would say in this draft than like each of the last two years in terms of just guys who are ridiculously valuable and are going to be like top eight picks or whatever but he's still entering an ecosystem where like harry giles will go ahead of him lowry markinen bam out of Bayo ivan Rabb was a guy who will be right around his area isaiah hartenstein's a guy that'll be right around there robert williams is a player that a lot of people like thomas bryant jared allen even though we'll talk about him in terms of guys whose draft stock has changed negatively so far this year but like that's another guy who is an interesting center prospect so the centers aren't really changing all that much but he is a guy who i think will have value in the nba just because he really does have a skill set in terms of playing in the pick and roll that is effective in today's nba
1: from the limited amount that I've seen of him, I, I think that he could be valuable in a couple of different ways and that, you know, yeah, he does have the, those kind of limitations that you talked about, but one of the most encouraging elements so far from what I've seen of this class is there aren't maybe a lot of guys who can be, you know, those real like franchise change, like the next Kevin Durant, like maybe Markell gets there, but there are a lot of players that when I watch them, I see, oh, I, I can imagine him having a, a reasonably long and successful pro career and Mm -hmm. the league needs those guys you know like it's it's great when you can have them coming in because that puts a little bit less pressure on development that you have to try to mine them or try to hone them out of something else if they can be a little bit more ready or and a lot of those guys are even a raw like john john isaac i really like him but i can see the i can see the talent in him and say okay he fills a need that the nba just has right now and he's good enough to warrant that kind of investment
0: yeah. I mean, John Isaac's a really interesting guy, too, I think who I think has been really solid throughout the early part of the year. He's shooting really well, provided some defensive versatility. I mean, he's a guy with a nine-foot standing reach who can tangibly guard threes right now, which is just... Crazy valuable in today's NBA because of the positional versatility he can bring. And that positional versatility will allow teams to do a wide variety of things with him and get him on the floor in a wide variety of ways, Uh, as long as he can shoot the basketball that is. And the shot, you know, maybe it doesn't hold up to 40% three point shooting, but if he can be a 30, four percent three-point shooter that's probably enough especially early in his career in terms of other guys kind of in that mold i mean you look up and you see a guy like a jason tatum or a josh jackson i mean those guys three fours even like you can see them some of them even playing the two in josh jackson's case even though he's playing like a pretty solid four right now for kansas because bill self is finally realizing the value of playing small which is great it's a really interesting draft in that capacity because you look around and you look at the wing position. That's the most needed position in the NBA right now. But this draft, I don't think really has a ton of great ones. Uh, you look around, you see those three guys, you see a, you know, an OG Ananobi who has been okay so far. He's kind of been the same guy though, and that same guy has a lot of value, but he still is not necessarily the full package offensively that you'd be hoping for. Miles Bridges is still a really undersized three whose skill set plays the four. There are some European guys, Rodion Kuroks, uh, Arnoldus Kolboka, who I like, who are kind of 3-4-y guys. Josh Hart's going to play the wing, but then you're really starting to get into speculative territory. And, you know, the wing position right now is the most sought after thing in the NBA so that teams have versatility to play both big and small. Not necessarily sure this draft's going to provide it in terms of wings who can either play two ways or who can shoot because I don't think there's a ton of wing shooting in this draft.
1: No, it doesn't appear that there is and that's a concern always because the league is going going kind of in that direction and, but you have to have the personnel there's no way to finagle that if you don't have it. And if, if you don't respect a player's jump shot, then you have to defend them differently and you have to play them differently offensively. But I like the, just the kind of versatility. And we talked about this a little bit when we did, when we did a podcast at the beginning of the season. We might see some of these players start to tilt in, even if their best position is. So, is another thing like for a lot of these guys they're are three fours and almost everybody who's a three four i think arnovitz is the guy is the person who deserves credit for this if you have to ask whether they're a three or a four there are four that's true mm-hmm. completely true in terms of ideal role but there are so many more fours than threes now that i think we're going to see some slide that way and we talked about this before but there's a possibility that we're going to see some natural ones defend twos now because there are just so many more point guards than shooting guards
0: yeah, no, I, I totally agree with that. I, th- I think that maybe the perfect example of that is Frank Tilakina over in France. I mean, for his club team, Strasbourg, he plays the two, like full stop. Uh they He plays next to a point guard, but then you saw him at the U18 this week or last week, I guess, really. And, you know, he's a full stop stud. Like he was... Dishing out assists, he was knocking down threes, he was the MVP of the tournament. It's just an overall great performance from him. And and really one of the best ways, I think, to get playmaking on the floor right now and to get versatile offensive ability on the floor is to get multiple point guards or multiple guys who have point guardish abilities on the floor. But to do that, you need to have guys with size who can play the two. One of my favorite lineups in college basketball right now is UCLA's lineup. Where they play Aaron Holiday, Isaac Hamilton, Bryce Alford, and Lonzo Ball around TJ Leaf. And essentially, Lonzo Ball is playing the four in that lineup. Like he's guarding fours full stop. And that's a really interesting, versatile decision, I think, from, you know, not only Steve Alford, but I think it's a really interesting, versatile decision that can showcase some of Lonzo Ball's potential defensive versatility on the next level. Because while he's not necessarily a great like stopper defensively in terms of what he's going to be able to do containing penetration against opposing point guards. He is a pretty good team defender who understands help defense and who gets into passing lanes and who can defend a wider variety of players and switches because he's so big. So it's really interesting to kind of see how kind of scheme of playing multiple guards is even permeating. I mean, last year, I think nine of the top 11 teams in the country played two point guards and just the more defensive versatility you can kind of find in NBA lineups with size, I think... Think uh, is better as far, as far as the way you can play and the versatile lineups you can match up against on the floor. It's not necessarily imposing your will on another team. It's being able to adapt to a wider variety of styles that are played against you.
1: I like that way of putting it because you it's it is about surviving to a very basic point. You know, it's it, whether you can whether you can make that work. And also the idea that certain players, I think of Dion Waiters for this, are better at defending guys that can, are bigger than them. You know, like they can make that work. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's the strength speed paradigm, you know, that you want, you want, you, you like to put players against like sized individuals, but sometimes that's not exactly the best. Marcus Smart does a nice job defending threes, but on Christmas Day, I was watching that game. Brad Stevens talked about how he likes having him offensively at the one because he can back down point guards. And so, Teams are going to have to figure out kind of the right calculus for them and it will change around a lot. And the flow into the league is going to be interesting with that. And I also keep thinking about that in terms of players that are in Europe, because with the money that's being in the NBA now, there is certainly a chance for some of those guys to just get a little bit of a payday, especially now that some of them might not even have their draft rights held so they can go into it as a more open thing instead of these players that are restricted by second round rights or even first round runs like Bo Don McDonovich.
0: Yeah, I mean, uh, the two guys that it wouldn't be crazy to see come over that kind of fit this paradigm of the one-two is Montes Kalnites, who is a uh, – I believe he's a Lithuanian point guard uh, who has been starting for that team for, I would say, seven years, eight years now off the top of my head. He has come over and played in Summer League a couple times. It seems like he really does want to try – but he's already thirty years old, but he can play. He's a really good creator. He's improved his jump shot to the level where he can probably play that one to two kind of role. And then the other guy's obviously Sergio Yule, whose rights are held by Houston. Uh, I would imagine that they'll want to try and bring him over if they can. But you know, he's making so much money in Spain that like it's gonna take something like eight to ten million dollars a year to get him over here. But again, he's a guy who's a really solid defensive guard despite his six foot four uh, frame. And he's just a tremendous shooter, obviously. And he's a good creator with the ball in his hands. So I, those are the two guys that I look at as guys who could really come over and kind of fit this paradigm of the combo one, two, who can both create their own plays as well as kind of defend multiple positions on the next level. It's just so valuable to be able to have guys who can do that and do it reliably at least.
1: I'm thinking out loud, but Sergio Yule could be somebody who benefits greatly from the expanded and corrected mid-level exception. Because yes, depending that's on, a really good depending point. Depending on how Houston approaches this, Nate Duncan and I have argued about this a couple of times, in, both on and offline, but my feeling is that the Rockets are not going to have much to do in terms of cap space. Like They could make it if they had to. But maybe being a little bit of a buyer in the short term and just being like, well, we can stay in that land between having real cap space and going into the tax for one year, Yule fits in perfectly there. He's better than just about anybody that they're going to be able to get on the open market for that kind of thing, especially considering when you have James Harden, he's a wonderful player, the Rockets are fun to play with, but you do curtail some of the guys that are going to be interested because they're not going to have the ball in their hands very much. They're going to be getting a ton of open shots, but also the Rockets don't have starting spots. So you aren't going to get players who are going to really be like a rental. There are certain spots and Mike D'Antoni is a perfect guy for this with a different team. But when you have all of the starting spots spoken for, you can't really go there and say, oh, this is a great way to boost my stock, especially when they like their young guys. But Yule is perfect because he doesn't check any of those boxes. He just, he is what he is. He's very good. And if that money is enough, then make it work.
0: Yeah, no, that's a really great point, I think. You look at what he can do, he's kind of the perfect sixth man off the bench for whenever like the 15 minutes a game that Harden isn't on the floor. He's the kind of guy who can step in and you know kind of run an offense, but mostly he's just like kind of an offensive creator. He's a microwave who can really get it going and he's not going to kill you defensively and those guys aren't exactly easy to find, I would say.
1: Also, especially if you're going to play him with second units, I'm totally fine with giving minutes to assuming they keep all of them together to Beverly Yule and Eric Gordon together. No second unit is really going to kill you because you're playing those guys together.
0: Yeah, and I I mean... What we're talking about with Yule, or what I just talked about with Yule, is kind of what the Rockets have done with Eric Gordon. They're kind of just letting him anchor that second unit, and it's really worked out well, I think. Obviously, uh, Eric Gordon's having a great year uh, for the Rockets. I forget what his averages are, but I mean, he's he's just looked a lot more comfortable. He can handle the ball a little bit more. He looks a lot more like Indiana Eric Gordon, like whenever he was playing for the Hoosiers and was such a highly valued piece because he was such a diverse player who could both get to the rim and who could really knock down jumpers from the outside. You know, I think that uh, his percentages in New Orleans obviously didn't necessarily bear this out. But I feel like on the market this year, he was kind of seen as this guy who was more of a floor spacer than like an offensive creator. And... You know, he's like always been, in my opinion, a guy who can really, really create offense whenever he's like coming off screens, coming off curls and able to make, make plays for teammates and make plays to get buckets for himself. I think he's a really good player when he's healthy.
1: One guy I wanted to talk about, I still have his b- scoring explosion sitting on my DVR. Hopefully I'll have time to watch it this week is Malik Monk. And the basic question for me with him is what is his ideal offensive role?
0: Yeah, that's a really good question right now. I don't think that anyone really has a terrific answer to that because right now to me, what he reminds me of is he's like kind of a better shooting Monte Ellis. Like he's not a guy who I think moves exceptionally well without the ball. He moves solidly and can come off of screens, can come off of flares and get some space. But what he does exceptionally well right now is he creates space going backward with the ability to cross over or, uh, he creates space by having just a really quick release that he can kind of get up off of or get up against anyone. So uh, he's a really good shooter right now. He is a guy who is a tremendous athlete in the open floor, but still not quite the kind of athlete that consistently gets to the rim in the half court because he has shorter arms and doesn't really have all that tight of a handle yet. He's a good straight line driver, but doesn't have any sort of change of space, change of pace, or a change of direction when he's going forward. So I think that he's a really tough one to figure out how he kind of. I guess works in the NBA and like how you can best accentuate his skill set because he does have a really valuable skill set. He can knock down shots from the outside basically as well as any player in college basketball right now. He's a shot maker through and through. But I think what NBA teams will do is they're just going to throw longer, tougher guys on him. They're going to throw threes on him essentially and, you know, make him score against length and make him try and drive against length and, You know, see how those step back jumpers work whenever you have a guy with a 8 foot 11 standing reach on you as opposed to a guy with like an 8 foot 2 standing reach like Joel Berry was in that UNC game so i'm really interested to see how this entire thing works with malik monk i think i'm a little bit more down on him though than a lot of people are like you look at for instance john Cavone over at draft express who does a great job he has malik monk fifth on his board right now he buys the shot making ability and the ability to create space i think a little bit more than i do but i just worry about him in terms of i don't know that he's going to be a great defender and If you can't get to the rim and get to the free throw line, I have concerns. And, you know, maybe he can show that throughout the year. Maybe he can show against SEC competition that he can get to the free throw line consistently and he can get into that painted area for floaters consistently. But he hasn't shown it yet. And I think that's kind of a concern for his stock going
1: forward. Yeah, he's only getting to the line uh, two and a half times a game, which considering he's playing almost 30 minutes a game, it's not like you're sitting there going, oh, well, he's only playing 15 minutes. That's OK. It's concerning in that way. He is a good shooter, but I don't see him in the same caliber of transferability as like Jamal Murray. Where when I watched Jamal, I thought, okay, I can see how this guy is going to work. And it's it's generally holding true. The nuggets are still wavering a little bit with what his role is. But I haven't watched a ton of monk yet. He's gonna be he's a guy that I'm really excited to watch film on, but when I have It hasn't been with that. It's been more like this is a very good college player and we can appreciate that, but I'm not sure how it's going to jump. Yeah, I mean, I'll
0: say this for Malik Monk, like... I would probably put him above Jamal Murray on a big board right now because I think he's going to be a better defender than Jamal ever has a chance to be. And I think I also, shot- I also
1: don't care about that as much with Jamal personally.
0: Yeah. No, I mean, that's fair. If you compare him with a guy like Gary Harris next to him, it all works out, right? Because you can just, you know, sit Gary Harris on the toughest guy on the perimeter and just kind of let Jamal Murray maybe run around screens and try and stay with a guy off ball with Monk, though. I mean, really what you're trying to do, I think, with positions like that is you're trying to find the best two-way guys. And with Murray, unless you're going to have him as like just a full-on creator who is like the centerpiece of your offense, I think you kind of do need him to be able to defend a little bit. Whereas Mm -hmm. with Monk, I think I can trust him to defend a little bit at least. Whereas with Murray, I'm not sure he can. And I think they're both like similar level jump shooters. Murray probably has a little bit quicker of a release, but Monk gets better elevation. I don't think his bothered as much by bigger defenders as Murray is sometimes. So I don't know. It's interesting. It's a really tough comparison because they're very different despite playing the same position as like kind of undersized two guards who will need to create their own space a lot. It's a, it's a, it's not the easiest comparison. They're really uh, quite different players, right?
1: They are. They certainly are. I just think of it in terms of, like, where you're taking them in draft and who you want to put around sure. them and everything like that. But you're right. And plus, they the are very different. thing,
0: like, you need to compare these. Like, they're natural comparable players, but, well, yeah, know, they as, play as, very as, differently.
1: You, you need – though, I – get really really queasy when when the college thing comes in though it's different with cal because of the ucla guys and so we saw russell westbrook comparisons for zach levine and we're and every once in a while i see a zach levine comparison for lonzo ball and i want to just smash my face in because yeah that's no not, it's crazy that's not what they are like they, they might be the two most different guys with that kind of like build that i that i can remember seeing
0: Oh, no. The funniest ones that I've seen are Russell Westbrook to to Malik Monk. And I'm like, that doesn't what? make any sense to me.
1: That doesn't what? make any sense to me.
0: They're both like crazy athletes. At least they didn't go
1: the same. But they're different kinds of crazy athletes.
0: Yes, absolutely. Like Russell Westbrook is like a whirling dervish of, you know, just elite athleticism plus elite motor. Whereas Monk is this just insane jump shooter who is, you know, able to go for 47 in 40 minutes, whereas, and he's going to do it all entirely on shots from 18 feet and out, whereas Ross, if he's going to go for 47, uh, I would say 35 of it's going to be from 18 feet and in, or, you know, not even 18 feet and in, probably 10 feet and in, in his case. So yeah, it's a really weird comparison that I've seen out there and I don't really get. I'm not the biggest Malik fan, I guess. Like, I think he's fine more than he is like this elite prospect that I think some people want to pigeonhole him into being.
1: That's fair. We've gone almost half an hour without talking about Lonzo. And
0: And I know you're so disappointed just, you know, being a UCLA grad. I'm sorry.
1: I'm of two minds with Lonzo because he's a fabulous talent and I think he's going to, he'll make an NBA team better. I'm not sold on him being the primary ball handler on a successful offense. I, I like him. I think he will be a part of successful offenses, but I don't think he's like that set it and forget it type of guy at this point.
0: So what worries you about him would be
1: my question. Can he create separation against guys who are better athletes?
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, that's He'll, a major concern. He, he couldn't he really the right do it des- against he De- makes the right Fox. decision. He makes the right decision almost every time, but you can't do it without creating much separation. Like it's It's almost impossible. And I think that he is good enough that you can start to blur the lines for him like you can get into a circumstance where i there's a term that i've flown in my head for almost 10 years and i've probably never said publicly which is i called in my head the decimal point guard system but it's probably more of a fractional system and the idea is basically that if you put multiple guys who are kind of like combo e-guards but are the right fit you might be able to make it work and i've grown i've moved away from that with time just because the value of having somebody who can be a go-to ball handler, especially in pick and roll. Lonzo might be kind of the exception that makes that possible. If you played him, like I think Beal's maybe not good enough, but with another guy who can do it a little bit, I think it could work. But if you just say, okay, he's the only ball handler that you're going to have on the floor, I'm not sure it's going to happen.
0: Beal's an interesting one because I think Beal would kind of provide a lot of defensive versatility for what those guys do. Like Maybe like an Eric Bledsoe maybe yeah like would that be kind of like the perfect one because he's yeah because
1: Bledsoe's he's good with the ball in his hands but it's maybe not his best thing I I also think that like Lonzo obviously the defense would be a disaster but Lonzo and Jamal Murray would be just magic
0: yeah it really would be and you know Denver might end up having a pick in that area might not depending on you know their season could go one of two ways right like they could really fly or they could really go down and you know Who knows what they think of Emmanuel Moutier at this point. I think they're probably still pretty high on him. And, you know, I'm still a little bit higher on Emmanuel Moutier than I think the general consensus is, despite his not great, I would say, start to the season. So we'll see what ends up happening there, and we'll see what ends up happening with Lonzo. I think that it's kind of a difficult—he's a tough player to really figure out a fit for. Like, in some ways, he's just going to fit wherever he goes just because the unselfishness is in the playmaking ability for others is a universal trait that I think always kind of works out in teams' favors. If you can get guys who are that unselfish and can create plays for teammates that well and can shoot in the way that he can at six foot six, that guy's going to have value basically wherever he goes. But I think that you kind of hit it on the head in terms of where the concerns are for me. He's a player that If he can't get consistent separation and can't get consistent penetration into the lane, is he an all-star? Like, do you think that he can do that? Do you think he can get to that level without that consistent penetration?
1: No, I don't think he can. But he can still be a useful part of a successful team. But... That's a very different thing than what you're getting if you're drafting him top five, which I'm not completely sure I would do. And Lonzo could end up being one of those players, and this happens every single year, who is actually hurt in terms of development by going too high in the draft.
0: It's possible, yeah. I mean, the way that I've kind of thought about Lonzo as a prospect is kind of like a Kyle Korver who is an elite playmaker, right? Because like... Ball is incredible at coming off of like down screens and getting his feet set and knocking down shots. And as long like the shot is funky as hell, but like as long as his feet are pointed toward the basket and he has like even a split second to get it off because the release is pretty quick. It's a pretty true shot in terms of, you know, coming off of his hand well and getting good rotation and really you know doing everything well. The problem is going to be, I don't think he's going to be able to shoot it well off the dribble in the NBA, which is where you're going to need him to be as a point guard. So if you think he's an elite playmaking Kyle Korver, what do you do with that player? (laughs) I don't know. I I honestly don't know.
1: But luckily he has two guard size and maybe even more than that. So you don't have to use him in the one defensively. You can play him with a lot of different guys. I was thinking about him with... Granted, I don't think that Chris Dunn has been the greatest guy as the pros this year, but I think Ball and Dunn could work. Yeah, and, I agree with that 100%. And, and they're an army of kind of one, like combo guard guys who don't really have the ball handling part, you know, or maybe they have it partially. So maybe he's the guy who, I be mean, granted, their defense would be abysmal, but even somebody like a Monte Ellis type who shouldn't necessarily be the primary ball handler, but can dance around it a little bit, but should ideally be defending ones. Maybe you just kind of punt a little bit on the defensive part of that. You're going to have to have a strong center, but just say, we're going to get a lot of buckets and make it work, kind of in the analogy of the Jamal Murray-Lonzo combination that I already threw together and I've already fallen in love with.
0: Yeah, like for Lonzo, it's really weird because in some level, like we've seen in college now that his game really works. Like he is just an outstanding basketball player who has totally transformed the culture of UCLA that has a ton of value. The problem is like, I don't think we've learned a ton more in terms of, is he going to be like just this preternatural elite NBA player that some people think he can be like some people think that just whatever, wherever he goes, he is going to be just this incredible elite talent because that basketball sense just travels regardless of what level it is. But I'm not convinced I have him at number six on my board. Like, I'm not low on him. I don't think like if you have a guy as a top six player in a draft, I don't think you can really be low on a player, but like he has very real concerns that I don't think have been fully answered yet for the NBA. And maybe if he does go like six or seven, maybe it just ends up being that he ends up like as the superstar of the draft and. That would be fine. And, you know, that's a kid. He's a kid that I really root for because, you know, having met him, he's just an incredible kid, really nice, really well, like really well spoken and really soft spoken. Just kind of lets his game do the talking for him. Like he's a really good kid who I root for, but there are concerns that I think are there and will continue to be there as the year goes on, unless he can prove otherwise about getting penetration against elite guards, elite, elite athletic guards, I would say.
1: I would love to see him go to a team that has more high-end talent. That's kind of why I, I, I thought about the Wolves also for him with the Chris Dunn thing is he wouldn't have to shoulder that kind of a burden. And you can never really predict that because there's so much variability at the top of any draft. But if Boston kept their pick and let's say they got somebody through free agency, like one of my dreams with that would be if they signed Gordon Hayward and drafted Lonzo Ball. It's like okay, oh, that would we be can tremendous. make it, and then play play Lonzo. Like let's say I let's say Isaiah eventually demands too much money in his in his free agency. So you end up running something like Avery Bradley, Gordon Hayward, and Lonzo Ball. Awesome, like you can make that work. Yeah. But if you stick him on the Suns as those guys age, if you stick him on the Sixers or even like Dallas and Miami who are good teams like uh, sorry I shouldn't have called them good teams they're not good teams but teams that have been good recently but are kind of on the hollow end of their talent pool I think that's going to be a really bad thing for him so it'll depend some somewhat on even how the lottery turns out like if you know if the Sixers can get better maybe you start to think about him but New Orleans would be like he would be s- just fascinating for them too especially then keep true yeah like that was one thing
0: I was going to ask you about. Like, what do you think of him on the Sixers next to Ben Simmons and kind of next to Joel Embiid is like, I guess they would kind of invert their positional structures in that way. Like if you played Lonzo with Simmons in the same, I guess, perimeter like offensive game, because you could really do, I think some interesting things with those two players. Like you could run pick and pops where they're like, Four one pick and pops with the one popping to the three point line after a screen of Simmons who can then either attack or dish to like Joel Embiid or something like it would be like the you'd be able to invert so many like positional schemes that I think it'd be really difficult to defend those guys.
1: It would be very difficult to defend them, especially because the positional inversions would still have a traditional center. Like you still have this seven foot Mm -hmm. two guy there, which makes it, it takes away some of the switchability that you think about with like a, I always call it a West Virginia team where like everyone's six, seven, you know, I get that situation. They're all Mm -hmm. a a little similar. So the defense doesn't feel as guilty about it. Well, you can't do that on Joel Embiid because Joel Embiid is a monster. So I think it would work. You need, you need a crap ton of shooting around them. Like that's really the other, the other part of it, but If that is how you want to think about
0: this, though, like, say you start Lonzo, Covington, Simmons, Joel Embiid, and shooter. That's probably enough, right? Like,
1: Joel can really shoot, and you can really shoot off the catch. You want a guy who can track me to shoot, like, Zach Levine would actually be a great other guy in that. Just run, basically say, "Okay, Zach, you never have to you never have to initiate the offense. Your entire job is defend your guy, and then just as soon as the ball goes up, just run." Mm-hmm. I would, yeah, I would pay a lot of money to see that team. And they're, are, are you know, Zach's probably close to the archetype of that. But you can get lesser guys who have other positive skills and work with it. But having those two together. The great part is you wouldn't have to rely on much ball handling from the other guys. You can look for other skill sets, and if you get ball handling from it, great.
0: Yeah, and like just on on some level, you're going to have to give post touches to Embiid, and that's going to take up a certain percentage of your offense in terms of the way that you initiate and look to score. So that requires less ball handling than other plays like pick and roll plays, or isolation, or handoffs, or even something like that. Like so they would have more than enough ball handling in that stage. It would be finding shooting. It'd be finding guys like Covington, finding a two-way player like a Gary Harris. Gary Harris is like my favorite player to bring up for all of these situations because every team could use Gary Harris in the NBA. And the Nuggets sure. have... and, that, like, and that's exactly...
1: Like Avery Bradley is a more actualized version of Gary Harris. So yes. if you want to say, oh, well, it's not true, well, look at Avery Bradley. It's working out really well.
0: Yeah, no, like, like Avery Bradley is a full-on stud, and I feel like everyone probably realizes that. Again, Gary no. Harris, like... Yeah. Like Gary Harris, like not everyone realizes that he's even like a valuable player yet. Whereas like if I was the Nuggets, I think he's probably the second or third most valuable player on that team, (laughs) or at least like second or third most valuable asset on that team, maybe just because you can use him so many different ways.
1: It's never going to happen, but the other Lonzo shipping location that would be fun is Orlando because they just have so little offense that if you played him with Fournier, I think it could work. You'd have to fix their front court rotation, which they're going to have to fix anyway. But I think I think ball ball Fournier, and then you just get like another a guy at the same size who can defend and just make it work.
0: Yeah, I mean, then that would also really help out Aaron Gordon if they would ever stop playing him at the three, like that would be great. Aaron Gordon can really do some things whenever he's next to athletes and he can really do some things in transition. So that would be awesome to play him next to Lonzo ball. Like I would be a big fan of that. And you mentioned Fournier, Fournier is a killer shooter that would really, uh, they'd really be able to space the floor. I mean, there are just so many different ways you can use Lonzo ball because of his size. Like if he was, you know, six foot three, even, I don't know how valuable of a player he would be at the next level. Like, where would you think his draft stock would be if he was like
1: 6'3"? Oof. He'd be so much less versatile. Yeah, exactly. I I think you drop him a few spots. And also, that alleviates some of the concerns about his jump shot if you leave him at the one. You know, the idea of him being a little bit weird. His release point's low, isn't it? It's just... It's hideous. It's hideous.
0: Yeah, it's, to it's low and really far to the side. Yeah,
1: really so like those kind of things. So so it makes it a lot easier. If you had his same jump shot released on a six for three guy. Yeah, it would drop. I think it'd be maybe somewhere around 10, maybe even lower than that. The sp- specific specialness of him would probably still apply. I mean, that's kind of part of the idea. And that ties me in with a guy. We mentioned him a little bit earlier who I have kind of a pet theory with De'Aaron Fox, which is I feel like his best thing is making the guy who he's going up against like his positional counterpart look bad. And that's a great thing yes. for a talented player. Yes,
0: that is exactly what happens with De'Aaron Fox. I mean, this kid is, you know, depending on how you consider OG Anobi, do you consider him a perimeter defender? Do you consider him like a forward defender? I, I, know, think, Aaron- a
1: prim- I think his best spot is threes. So you can do that. Like, yeah. what do you, with, we'll go on to OG quick. Just, I think he can defend twos as well.
0: Oh, no. I mean, OG and Anobi legit can defend one through five in the college level. In terms of the NBA, like maybe he can't stay in front of like the ultra quick guards, but I think he's going to be fine on everyone else.
1: Yeah. Two through. I I think of it more as two through four who can handle himself in in a situation when the other presents itself.
0: Yeah. And like I'll say this, too, for him, like he's a built kid to where. Yeah, you're not going to want to like just straight match him on fives like, you know, Golden State can do with Draymond, but he's at least going to be able to hold his own and switches on fives in the NBA. Like, yeah, he's going to get murdered by Joel Embiid, but every 3 4 in the NBA is going to get murdered by Joel Embiid. Like, you're going to be able to switch him onto a lot of different fives and just kind of live with the result. And that's a really valuable player to have in today's NBA where switchability is I don't know if it's the most valuable defensive trade a player can have just because on some level, just being able to knock your player that you're going up against out of the game due to your length and size and ability to just contain penetration on them is so valuable. But like in terms of just being a team defender, switchability is incredibly valuable and OG is maybe the most switchable defender that we've seen enter the NBA in a while. I can't really remember one that was, you know, more.
1: Kawhi, I think we were also worried about his offense, but his his defensive mm-hmm. like that kind of switchability because he always seemed like he could move well for his size. Another player who fit that that we never thought about it for him at the time is LeBron. Like I'm not comparing yeah. OG to LeBron at all, but LeBron was switchable we, just because he's he's I I don't even really know how to compare him because he's built like a Mack truck and is somehow still the fastest guy in the league.
0: Yeah, I mean LeBron is just we should just not use him. when we're
1: talking about yeah. the best things. <laughs> Just ignore that LeBron James ever existed because it just makes everything unfair.
0: Yeah, but no, I, I think that you bring up Kawhi and that was the last one that I could like really think of, but that's still 2011, right? So like... Yeah, it's a
1: while. That's a while
0: ago. You know, in five years, maybe he's the most switchable Because Stanley defender. Johnson's
1: not that type of guy. Justice Winslow isn't that type of guy.
0: He's... there. They, those two guys just aren't as big, right? right. Like OG is like 6'7", with like a 7'2 wingspan. Th- those guys are switchable. They're just not like crazy switchable like those... like. You know, OG and Anobi can be because of the size. I'm trying to think, like, maybe Nerlens is kind of an interesting one in that capacity. Oh, like, I've like, ever seen him.
1: AD, a little bit, you know, Davis, because he could, he blocked all those three pointers. But that was actually more in a help capacity than in a switch capacity.
0: Yeah, exactly. Nerlens is an interesting one. Like, we still haven't seen. The best of New and like I don't think we will in Philly and you know I think it's likely he gets traded before the end of the year but like I hope so what he is capable of on the defensive end is so incredibly valuable like just in terms of being able to deal with ones on switches and containing a little bit of penetration even not maybe not like against even the hyper elite quickness but even against like semi quick guards is just incredibly valuable
1: People like you and I, and we talk about this a lot, sometimes on the podcast, a lot of times not, we like the idea of guys that can test some of our thought experiments. And Lonzo's a player like that with his offensive role and kind of vacillating between different things. I would say James Harden is another one of those. And Nerlens is kind of the center defense version of that, of can you have a guy yeah. who is a talented defensive center, but his best defensive attributes are not the common defensive center attributes? Like, I think it can totally work. I, I, I think you have to design a scheme a little bit different for him, but I'm completely on board.
0: Well, it has to be like a hyper, like aggressive perimeter scheme, I think. Right. Like, you know, before we got on air, we were talking about New maybe going to Portland. Portland runs like a super conservative, like pick and roll scheme defensively. If they wanted to get New I think they would have to totally adjust what they do defensively. Some coaches don't really like doing that. Some coaches really would just rather, you know, play their scheme and roll with it. So I think Nerlens is a very scheme-specific player in a lot of ways, but that's fine. Like I think that coaches should be willing to adjust their scheme to the personnel they have, especially whenever they have like a. I mean, people were talking about Kristaps Porzingis is a unicorn. Like Nerlens Noel is kind of a defensive unicorn. Like I don't think we've really seen a guy who is that quick. Uh, in terms of being able to cut down penetration on guards. like imagine what Spoke uh, could I do with think him. One really. Oh, freaky. It would be awesome. I would love for him to go to Miami. And I mean, having heard about some of Nerland's proclivities through some of his media reports, such as the thing he trashed, like the um, apartment he trashed in Philly, maybe he would like to go down to South Beach and play a little bit. I think that'd they, be a they great also, fit.
1: They also have experience dealing with Mercurial guys, especially big men.
0: Yeah, and I mean, on some level, like, yeah, this is never going to work. They just signed Hass- Hassam Whiteside like to a three-year deal after this year, so like it's never going to happen. But no. it'd be really fun.
1: But that's why the thought experiment guys are fun, and so that's why we we dabble with it. And and I would also like if you had a, even a more traditional five that was capable of switching, I think that could work with Nerlens too. And this is like I was thinking about the idea of Nerlens and Giles playing together. I don't know where that would be, but I think that would work too.
0: Yeah, I mean, you would have two guard or two big men who can switch onto guards competently. Like that would be, I mean, how many teams have two like six foot eleven or taller guys who can switch competently onto guards? I, it's I really, what, it's
1: what Minnesota should have been going after with the compliment to Carl Towns.
0: Yeah, like I feel like part of the problem with Towns is, is that I'm not convinced that he is going to grow into his frame and continue to be like as incredible in pick and roll defense is like his potential says he can be like he's a big body dude that's i, agree already like and I, also, I also don't
1: think he's gonna grow into being that like rock solid defensive five i think i think you want to maintain his quickness because that's what makes him special
0: yeah no i i totally agree i, I don't know if that's gonna be the way this works but it would be very nice to see him grow into that, uh, and maybe Thibodeau does that. I don't know, but they're playing him at the four all the time right now under Thibodeau, and that's really weird and strange to me.
1: I feel like we could eventually, I don't think we need to do this, but we could do an entire podcast on players and schemes that don't make sense. And yes, and, all and it would
0: just be us like just destroying coaches in the NBA for you know, like an hour, and everyone would hate us, and it would be great.
1: It would be great. Wanted to take a quick moment to tell you about the sponsor of today's show, Audible. One of the things I wanted to, to talk with you a little bit about there, the, there's this group of kind of middle late lottery centers, and you know them better than I do, like Bam and, and Marcus Bolden, like we alluded them, Tom Bryant. Have any of those guys stood out to you as being, let's say, more than a 15 to 20 minute a game guy? And there's a value to that. I'm not saying there isn't. But when I watch all of them, I think, OK, they can be a part of an NBA rotation, but I'm not sure they're going to be a starter.
0: Yeah, I mean, that's a really, really tough one. Like, Lowry Markkinen, I think, is probably the best of all of them. Like, are you considering I Markkinen, like
1: I, like... I think of him a little differently, but I'm completely okay with having him as a center.
0: Yeah, like, I, I think he is a five at the next level. Like, he's seven feet tall. He, He's, like, he's got decent fluid athleticism, but I don't think he has, like, the lateral quickness to stay with fours consistently. I think you're going to need, like, a rim protecting four to play with him. And that's a really difficult thing to find. But if you can find that with him, I think he can probably be a starter in the NBA in the right situations beyond him. You know, maybe the t- the guy with like the highest upside is Robert Williams at Texas A&M. He's just like a 6 foot 10 pogo stick with a 7 foot 5 7 foot 6 wingspan. Uh, he's averaging like 21 10 and 5 blocks per 40 minutes. The jump shot is actually not bad. Like right now who he kind of reminds me of is Ed Davis except with a jump shot that he can grow into. Cuz like if Ed Davis had a jump shot, Ed Davis would be a starter, right? Like that's not He'd be a starter a crazy- on his current team. <laughs> Yes, exactly. So actually,
1: and he probably wouldn't have four former teams or whatever he has.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably the biggest thing to know. Robert Williams is kind of in that mold right now, where he is still learning the game. Like he's still not nearly where he needs to be. Like there's a reason he's not really starting at Texas A&M yet and only playing twenty minutes a game. Like his basketball IQ is not. Elite yet, but he does have like this innate ability to affect shots at the rim. He's a great um, rim protector. He especially on the weak side. He moves pretty well in terms of what he's able to do on the perimeter defensively, and he, you know, was already just ridiculous at catching lobs. Uh, and he has really good touch around the basket and the jump shot is getting there. It's a slow release, but he has good touch from, you know, 18 to 20 feet right now. And that's valuable, I think, at the next level. So we'll see if he can actually get to where he needs to be in terms of basketball IQ and the speed of the game, so to speak. But physical tools wise, I think he has the upside, at least to be there. Like I have at number 23 on my board because I tend to be conservative with off the radar freshmen that played 10 games in the non-conference and probably three or four of them are valuable scouting exploits because of team quality. But he's a kid that I've really liked and I think has potential to do really good things.
1: Interesting. I I definitely want to watch more of him, especially as you know, I'm a big fan of of big guy play. Marco Foltz has, I think he's done well enough. I mean, when I, I haven't seen anything, but so it seems like he's solidified his place Maybe not as the number one pick because that gets more complicated into the lottery and everything else, but as the the best player in this draft.
0: Yeah, I think that's probably fair at this stage. Like, I have not yet talked to a team. Like, I've talked to a variety of different scouts throughout the early portion of the season. I've yet to talk to anyone who doesn't have him at number one on their own, like, personal board. He's averaging 22 points a game, six rebounds, six assists, two steals, and a block. Get out of here. I mean, (laughs) 30 PER, 58 true shooting percentage on 29 usage rate, like 35 assist rate on a 13 turnover rate. Everything that he is doing is wildly absurd. Like, it is absolutely insane. People are real excited about the numbers that Jawan Evans is putting up. And Jawan Evans has been great so far. Don't get me wrong, but like, Markel Fultz is outpacing him in basically every single number and he is a year or maybe even two years younger and just been like a full-on stud for a Washington team that is god-awful
1: yeah I mean how many years is is Lorenzo Romar gonna have lottery picks and be interesting but keep that job I mean it's a tough thing because Washington hasn't you know other than the Brandon Roy years they've been inconsistent they have actually they've been consistently not that relevant other than those type of guys but it brings excitement to the program and they probably wouldn't be getting them without him.
0: No, I mean, they definitely wouldn't be getting these players without him. Uh, I don't think that that is in doubt at all, but I mean, this is a guy who's now going on. I mean, they're not making the NCAA tournament this year unless they win the PAC 12 tournament. So that'll be six straight years without an NCAA tournament appearance. He made three years in a row before that. And then he missed it two years in a row previously to that. So like, I think he's, Kind of on borrowed time. I wish the best for him and every. They have another high end guy coming
1: in behind. They, they have another high end guy behind Markell, right?
0: Yes, they have uh, Michael Porter is going right. there next year, and Porter is a very particular case with him going to Washington because Porter's father is on the Washington staff, uh, and it's not even like one of those situations where you know they hired him to get the kid. Romar and Porter, like they were the best man at each other's wedding like they have been like close for a long time and i think like even if romar did not hire the uh the elder porter i guess i think porter michael porter junior the elite prospect would still be going to washington it's hard to say like whether or not they will finally pull the plug on this but on some level to me at least Team success is what matters. I know that relevance is something that is useful in the NCAA, but team success matters. And if you're pulling these guys in and still can't find a way to win, that's a significant problem with the program. And you probably need to just kind of cut the ties there. It's like I said, like I don't like calling for anyone's job necessarily. I mean, it's a crappy thing to do, I think. But the results have not been there for this program, given the talent level.
1: Yeah, I have no opposition to that. Romar has done, he's done an interesting thing there, but I think Washington can aim higher. They're in a, Seattle's a wonderful city. Their football team has done an excellent job of of recruiting up there, Chris Peterson going there. And that can be sort of the template, you know, trying to get that next guy who can really build your program. But yeah, maybe you wait out Michael Porter, you you wait out that year and just try to line it up, but you never know who Romar is going to pull next.
0: I mean, here's, here's the thing too. Like that Seattle area is a really, a pretty strong recruiting ground. Even I would say like you look at, you know, some of the players that have, you know, come from that area and you know, who are in college now, it's actually a really solid fertile recruiting ground, like more than you would think it is. So yeah, I, I think that it's very easy for a team to potentially, or for a coach to find success there. And you know, it's he always ends up having these young teams because on some level, like you don't expect players to leave, right? Like you're not expecting Marquise, Chris and DeJounte Murray to leave after one year, right? Like that's just not the way that recruiting guys works. Like you expected Chris to be a two-year player there. You expected Murray to be a two-year player there. And it just hasn't, just hasn't necessarily worked out like that because he runs a system that really showcases guys. Like he show like, Part of the reason he is such a interesting coach for recruits to play for is that he'll just let them run up and down, accumulate stats and, you know, really showcase their abilities. But on some level, like you have to get the results and I don't think he's getting them at this stage.
1: There are three guys that I think are kind of in the top tier that we haven't really spent much time on. We'll go through them each a little bit quickly. Let's start with Dennis Smith. I haven't watched much of NC State this year. They're a team that's on my list after they were on your list for me to watch. But what should I be looking for? What have I missed?
0: Yeah, Dennis Dennis has been interesting so far. I would say that I have been relatively disappointed for like in what I've seen of him in some capacity because... Uh, he's been better over the last few weeks for sure, or over the last like two weeks really for sure. He's still averaging like 19 points and nearly six assists a game. So he's been good. Don't get me wrong, but like he's been pretty lazy defensively and the turnovers have been a little bit greater than what I was expecting of him. And like, there's just been like some little stuff, you know what I mean? Where like, I'm, I've am i been relatively disappointed. The finishing hasn't been all that great. He's still shooting, uh, or he was shooting like 29% from three before going on a hot streak to up that level over the last couple of games to now a 38% from three range. It's been fine. You know, like it hasn't been, he hasn't been an elite player by any stretch of the imagination, but he's been a really, really good one so far. And I think that with Yurt Savin back and with Maverick Rowan, a really good shooter, uh, six foot seven shooter, who I think is actually from Pittsburgh now that I think about it or played in Pittsburgh, he's going to have more space to operate. And I think he has a shot to be a really, really successful player in ACC play. He, yeah, I'll be interested to see how that really goes down for him. He's a guy to watch though, I think in ACC play more than going back and watching some of his games so far.
1: Good, because that's more likely for me to do anyway. So at least at this point, of course, when we get to the end of the season, then you go back and watch a lot of old film. Next guy, right. we're talking about. And, him you know, a little- like
0: like I said, like I just went negative on Dennis Smith for a while. Like he's still a crazy athlete. Like he is yeah. still getting to the lane whenever he wants, and he is absolutely like a top eight pick in this draft. I have no doubts about that. He's still an incredible player, and his ceiling is like- still very,
1: very high. It's just I when I watch it, I've watched a little bit. It's just I'm not completely sure that he's going to really scratch that ceiling, but it's still there.
0: Yeah, I mean, whenever you're that kind of athlete, the ceiling is always there.
1: Next up. Josh Jackson, we talked about him a little bit. I know you're just a huge fan of him, and his p- value in this draft is that he does, already does certain things well, he can get better at it, and plays a position of intense value.
0: Yes, I mean, he is an elite, elite athlete with an elite, elite motor. That's a starting player in the NBA, I would say, just full stop. About his ceiling, I wonder about it sometimes when I watch him. Like He's averaging like 21 points, 9 rebounds, and 5 assists per 40. He's shooting 53% from the field. Those are superstar college basketball numbers. And he is a freshman playing the 4 for Bill Self. Like He's been ridiculous so far as well. He's going to be a starter in the NBA. I think that in this class, he is the player that could immediately play the best in the NBA right now. Like He's the guy that I would feel most confident stepping into a rotation in the NBA right now and being okay, like holding his own at the very least. Yeah, I mean, but he's still a guy with a jump shot that has been really bad so far. I think there are going to be concerns about him uh, scoring in the half court generally until that jump shot gets figured out. I don't necessarily know that he's going to be able to play on ball as much in the NBA as he has in college so far, but... Like I said, like this kid is a great defender, a great athlete. He has tremendous basketball sense. He's a great passer for a wing. Really, he's a really good transition basketball player in terms of, you know, being able to grab and go off of the glass and creating plays both for himself and teammates and getting easy buckets. So he's going to be a really good player. He's going to be a starter in the NBA, I think. Um, Whether or not he ends up becoming like a super duper star. I have my qualms about, but he's going to be a really good player
1: at this point. Assuming you're not taking him number one, isn't that all you can really ask for? I mean,
0: um, in this draft, I think there are going to be some guys that have like really high ceilings. Like Jonathan Isaac just ostensibly has a, higher ceiling than josh jackson in my opinion because isaac is a guy with that is six foot ten with a nine foot standing reach who you know like if his body fills out and continues to become a bit more explosive you know that kid's a total freak he is just a monster nba player if that happens what what do you think Uh, i haven't
1: watched enough of him recently to to feel comfortable with his handle with his handle because if jonathan isaac can get a little bit of a handle it would be incredible
0: i i think that it's no different than what paul george's was like in the second year at fresno right okay. like he's st- like like it's not great i'm not gonna sugarcoat it and say that like it's you know this he's gonna be able to create plays in the nba from day one but he is a guy that i think has the basis of a handle and has like the basis of being able to you know at least Perform a crossover and get some space on someone. So, no, I think he's a really interesting player at the very least. I have him at number four on my board right now just because on some level, like all of this is, to me, an expected value equation where it's like, you know, a player's ceiling matched by certainty to get to that ceiling. And then, like, a player's floor you have to take into account as well. You know, his ceiling uh, that, That's, that's just... an
1: interesting way of thinking about it. Sorry to interrupt, but no, also... Yeah. There is this idea it's talked about in baseball sometimes about how the the value of a win changes the higher up you go. So basically that that you know if your your 100th win is substantially more valuable than your 51st because that can mean revenue it can mean lots of other things. So a high ceiling guy even if their EV is maybe the same, that ceiling provides a little bit of surplus value. In the same way that some would argue the floor brings negative value, but I actually think that's not as big a deal unless you feel like you have to play it.
0: Yeah, I mean, especially I think in the NBA, it's even a little bit more different where you have just star power carrying the day so much. Like if you can get an all-star player uh, at number four or number five in a draft, that just carries so much more value than picking up a solid starter. You know what I mean?
1: Yeah, I completely agree with you. And the I don't think Isaac is gonna be in that MVP caliber, but if you if you want to win championships, you need an MVP caliber player. And my instinct at this moment, and I want to watch a lot more of him, is that Josh Jackson's gonna be very good, but he won't be that guy. So mm-hmm. if if for those who think Jonathan Isaac is that guy, which again is probably not me, that's an argument too because you can't, yeah. like, Paul, like, think about Paul George. He's a great example of this. You know, like, high-ceiling guy, has reached a lo- really high amount of his of his potential. Like, he's, I like to think of it as the universe of outcomes, and so, like, let's say from 0 to 100, least favorable to most favorable, he's in the 90s on his, just like Kawhi Leonard is probably at 99 or 100. But yeah. those guys had the 99-100 that was so valuable, whereas some of the players that were taken above them really didn't.
0: Yeah, no, exactly. Like, you look at... Uh, I'm trying to think, like, who went in that 2011 draft. Like, Tristan Thompson has probably hit, like, an 80th percent outcome, right? Or, like, an 85th percent outcome for him. And it, it's still just not naturally as high as what a guy like Kawhi Leonard had hit, you know?
1: Jan Vesely is probably a good example from that class.
0: Well, Jan hit, like, a, you know, 6th percent. Right.
1: Or, potential or Alec, outcome. Burks. Alec Burks.
0: Burks. <laughs> good
1: player I, I like if he can ever stay healthy i like burks as an nba guy but like the, his best case was not even close to Kawhi's.
0: yeah no it, it really wasn't i mean even a guy like chris singleton so chris singleton went in that draft and was you know not crazy dissimilar to Kawhi. i would say Kawhi was a better prospect but you know chris singleton was a six foot nine defense first power forward ish kind of wing guy who was the acc defensive player of the year and ended up you know, totally flaming out in the NBA with the Wizards, so it's not always all about ceiling, but sometimes it is about uh, just trusting a guy to get better and eventually figuring things out.
1: Yeah, that's a good way of putting it. And there are, of course, if you go ceiling, there are always four examples. Fab Bellows, another one of those. Though I was never completely yeah. sold with his his ceiling, but. You get into that, but then I also think about somebody like Brandon Knight, very different position, very different role. But like, I never really believed that he was going to run an NBA offense. And yeah, that was that always, always lowered his ceiling for me.
0: You know, here's the other thing: the guy who went right below Brandon Knight in that draft was Kemba Walker. I didn't really ever necessarily buy Kemba Walker running in True. NBA I offense didn't at like a top fifteen level. He's hit like the ninety fifth percentile of his outcome. I would say, like, he is now in. Probable All Star point guard this year. So no, it's it's really uh, it's really difficult sometimes to judge the expected values of these players. Like even when they really hit, like for instance, Kemba Walker has. Kemba Walker is still just naturally so. Like Kemba Walker and Kawhi Leonard are both ninetieth percentage outcome players, but Kawhi is just a lot more valuable than
1: Kemba is. Kawhi's an MVP guy, and it also we talk about how hard it can be to figure out as a draft prospect. Another guy who was in that lottery is Bismack Biyombo. Bismack Biyombo ended up getting a a big contract and the team that drafted him had the rights and basically just let him go, even though they needed a backup center. So, the, you know, he, I mean, granted, I don't want to use ages with him, but, you know, he was still in his twenties at that point. He was still in his twenties, had, had potential and they just, they knew him well and just went, eh. E-
0: even you saying he was still in his twenties, like he was theoretically drafted at 19. <laughs>
1: <laughs> he he was in his, he I, I feel comfortable saying he was in his twenties that year that he was a restricted free agent and they withdrew his qualifying offer. I, I'm comfortable <laughs> saying
0: that. Oh, that's fair. Yeah, he was. He, I'm sure. uh, Yeah, I I feel okay about that. (laughs) But you're right. You're right. No, I mean Bismack was a tough one. Bismack was always going to get someone fired. I felt like, and that's why to me, like you know, these high upside players that are so far away from reaching their upside. For instance, like a guy like um, Marquise Chris. Oh man, Marquise Chris is a perfect example of this because we've talked about this before. Like Marquise Chris was to me two years at least away from being a competent NBA basketball player and I know that Marquis Chris is starting in the NBA right now but starting does not equal competence in the NBA has he been one of the five worst players in the NBA so far
1: We were actually discussing this uh, a couple days ago not you and I uh, Nate and I and I think he's the worst starter in the NBA and he's on the short list of the like the the most net negative net value so far and that yeah. is not meant to kill the kid He's just no, not at not that at point all. in his career. I, I like Marquise Chris. I thought they did a good job to trade up and get him. I also don't think he should be starting over Dragon better. Separate issue. Have to have my own beef with Earl Watson about that. But he's in an unfortunate situation and hopefully he can react to it and do well with it. And I think that's certainly possible. Certainly fair. But see, here's, here's my thing on Chris that I will say.
0: I think it was a really difficult decision to trade what they traded up to get him. Because you figure they traded 13, they traded 27, and they traded a guy who I think is a rotation wing in Bogdan Bogdanovich whenever he comes over. So you're essentially trading for four years plus RFA rights of a player. Chris is not going to provide you value. And I think that they had to have known this at the time they take him. Chris is not going to provide value for two years, like on the first two years of his rookie year or a rookie deal. Like that's just not going to happen. He's nowhere near ready to play yet. So – how much does that kill his value for what you're selecting? Like how
1: much your main O'Neill nightmare scenario, basically.
0: Right. Are you essentially drafting him to either like have to decide that you have to pay him after year four, even though he hasn't shown it, or are you drafting him for another team to pick him up and become a star player when he's 23, which is not that old, but also when he will come up as an RFA. So like, it's a really difficult concept and that's why I think there is more value in guys like a Josh Hart or like a mark or a Malcolm Brogdon than typically is you know portrayed especially once you get after pick 20.
1: I'm really happy that the Bucks have gotten such a nice a nice player out of Malcolm Brogdon, considering I felt bad when they sold the pick that became Patrick McCaw and he started out so well. They're sitting there going, oh, that's such a shame because they needed a guy like that. But Brogdon doing it takes some of this thing out. Though, if they had both of those guys, it'd be awesome.
0: Yeah, it would be good. I mean, McCaw, let, let's be let's be kind of frank about this. McCaw still hasn't really done much in the NBA yet. Like, he's nope. looked good his in train, terms his, of, the like... The
1: highlight of his season so far was, was summer league and preseason, but that's what you'd expect for a guy who was a second-round pick.
0: Oh, no, absolutely. And, like, McCaw, you know, I, I think that they got good value. And I think that for their board, like, what they look for in players and the system they run... I can easily see him being a top 25 player on their board, and I am 90% sure he was like a top 25 player on their board. But for another team, like if you're trying to think of the team that had like a later pick in that draft, um, if you're, if you're Boston and you have a later first round pick in that draft, like if you have 23 or whatever, or you're, you're like San Antonio who has 29 and took DeJounte Murray, I don't really think there's anything all that wrong with passing on what he can bring because he's again really far away in my opinion from contributing to an NBA team because his body is just nowhere near being good enough
1: I've been impressed with his mind though I think he, he's he's more apt in that way than most guys who come into the league as young as he was not that he, mm-hmm. he was two he was two two years at young right Yes. He was two years at UNLV. Always been a really high uh, IQ player. Like I, I'm not
0: worried about the thinking part of his game. I'm more worried about the body because in the NBA, you really, to play the wing particularly, have to have a tremendous frame to deal with the physicality. And especially when you're kind of thought of as a, I don't want to call him a three and D because he doesn't really have the three point shot, like a playmaking and D kind of player. Like a, you know, like Contavious Caldwell Pope doesn't even really fit that realm because even though like Caldwell Pope is a decent playmaker and can get his own shot, like he's still not really like a playmaker kind of guy. It's a difficult thing to have that kind of frame and be an effective player on the defensive end early.
1: Totally fair. I was trying to think of kind of other, oh, we do haven't talked at all about Jason Tatum.
0: Jason yeah, Brady. I mean. He's like the most boring player in this draft. I have not yet talked to an NBA scout who like doesn't love Tatum. Everyone thinks he's awesome. Um, Good he kid, will... an
1: interesting skill set, potentially valuable. Still not completely sure how he'll be dominant. Is that about right?
0: Yeah, I mean, some people think he's going to like lead the NBA in scoring one day. What? Like, yeah, like some people are like just that convinced in his skill set where they think that. He will continue to develop his three point shot. He's already so fluid with the ball in his hands in terms of attacking closeouts and creating from the mid post and, uh, you know, doing a wide variety of things in transition that once the three point shot comes along and once his body fills out a little bit more, that it's just going to be lights out. You know, like he's everything's going to click and he's just going to figure it out. And I don't think it's crazy to think he averages, you know, 20 plus in the NBA at some point. I mean, the shot is really good. It's really fluid. It's all very quick in terms of release, and it's all very quick in terms of his moving or his movement. And I, I'm a really big fan. I don't know. Like, I, I really like what Tatum does, but I, I don't know that he's going to, like, lead the NBA in scoring. That's probably, like, the 99th percentile outcome, obviously. But, you know, he's, he's a guy that I will be surprised if he falls out of the top four in this draft. I know that some people have him, like, you know, Five, six, or so, but everyone I talk to is just super comfortable with him. Like you said, like it's all very—it's a very boring subject, almost, right?
1: He fits a lot with two teams to me. That, uh, granted, it's also teams that I disagree with the way they're using their stars. But at the power forward spot next to Towns or next to Anthony Davis, I think that's just perfect.
0: Yes, I would really like him next to Anthony Davis for sure. Towns next to like Towns and Wiggins and Levine.
1: Yeah, I'm I not saying next that. to Wiggins. I'm not saying next to Wiggins. I'm saying next to Towns, and that's it.
0: Why are you not saying next to Wiggins, Danny? Danny, come on. Don't don't,
1: don't ruin my night here. Because I don't think Andrew Wiggins is a great fit with Karl-Anthony Towns. I could say a yeah, lot more. I that could do I an can entire... kind of buy. Andrew Wiggins. So Nate and I, for people who haven't listened to it, the dunked on about the Christmas Day games, I sort of honed a thing that I've been thinking in my head and finally decided to say outright, which is as much as probably Wiggins fans hate the comparisons to Harrison Barnes, they're going to hate this more. I see a lot of Rudy Gay in him that he yep. makes teams Andrew Wigginsy. That is a good thing for certain teams. Like an Andrew Wigginsy team is a lot better for certain teams. Like let's say Phoenix, like that's a lot better than they are right now. But Carl Anthony Towns is a completely different type of guy. And I think that you don't want to put those kind of constraints on him. Just like you didn't want to put that. On some of the teams that Rudy Gay has played on in the past and might even be curtailing Cousins a little bit, though. They're more simpatico than somebody like Towns, just because Towns is so dynamite with the ball in his hands. Yeah,
0: Wiggins is kind of like if Rudy Gay and DeMar DeRozan had like a child, almost, like the way that he's playing right now. And I think that it's a little bit scary for his future development that he is forced to have the ball in his hands as much as he is. I also think that a lot of people are like they would rather have Zach Levine than Andrew Wiggins right now. And I think there are certain circumstances where you can you can get there. Like if you have the right mix of guys on your team already, I can see like going out and getting Levine versus going out and getting Wiggins. My thing with Wiggins is that, A, I think that how much he's used is incredibly... Valuable just generally, like being able to handle that kind of load and score efficiently is very valuable. And I think it makes Levine's life easier the fact that he is able to handle that kind of load. Like Levine is not necessarily as expected to score as much, and he gets a bit less attention from defenses. Uh, Number two, for as bad as Wiggins is defensively. He's still a little bit better than Levine is defensively. He is. And whereas or whereas Wiggins has the tools to improve defensively, like Wiggins's defensive tools are, you know, elite, but you know, he yeah, probably he, won't get there. Full stop. He, like if, he probably if, just if won't he, get
1: If he if he had the mental, if he had the mental approach and also had a different offensive workload, he has the physical potential to be an All-NBA defender or all-defense yes. defender. Yes.
0: But even so, like he has at some point in his career, I feel confident saying Andrew Wiggins will be at least a league average defender.
1: I hope so. I think it's very very reasonable.
0: Just being 21 years old. And at some point, he's going to figure out that he needs to what he needs to do defensively. Like, you know, I probably would have said the same thing about DeMar DeRozan. And that clearly hasn't happened. But I feel confident saying like I, I would bet with someone that at some point in his career, Andrew Wiggins will be a league average defender. I don't feel that way at all about Zach Levine.
1: <laughs> I don't you feel remotely feel that way
0: at all about Zach near that level on Zach Levine. That's why I'm still way more in on Wiggins than I am Levine. I'm generally still in on Wiggins. Like I think he's still. I listened to yours and Nate stunked on about like the top ten or fifteen uh, young players in the NBA, and I would still have Wiggins like probably fifth right now like he's still i think they had him fifth and i have six
1: though yeah and, that, and that's the hard part about it because with the there aren't that many guys at that age group that are finished products and you focus a lot on the negatives because in some ways it's more frustrating but you're right that his his offensive workload is pretty much unparalleled especially for a wing like there are guys who have have a workload like that and we're still in the point where potential can become reality so mm-hmm. it's kind of one of those things where it's like i understand why the people who are more positive on him are more positive on him. But I'm just starting to realize the idea of expected value. Like, I, I just think that some of that yeah. is coming off. You know, it, it's disappointing, but he's still a useful, valuable player. My point is that he just has the misfortune, in this sense, of being on a team with one of those players that has, that defies all classification, that defies all all, all that stuff, particularly offensively. And so I don't want a high usage guy... On the Wolves, because they don't need a high usage guy at this point.
0: Yeah, no, I totally agree with that. I would like to see him, you know, downgraded in terms of usage. It's just I don't know what that will look like at some point if they will eventually get to that point with him. We'll see. I don't know. Yeah. Um, and, and, I Um, the, sli-
1: the, the sliding doors idea of what he would have been playing in Cleveland next to LeBron is mind-blowing to me because i just don't know like it's it's basically like you take a raw thing of clay and are just trying to build a completely different vessel from it so maybe it would have worked maybe it wouldn't have i legitimately don't know
0: yeah like maybe he turns into like more of a Kawhi ish player than a rudy gay-ish player if that makes sense like playing next to stars in cleveland versus and playing uh, for stakes immediately
1: and getting that kind of leadership and mentorship Also, they had so many of the other pieces figured out, he could have stepped into a kind of niche and had that motivation to basically say, if you don't play defense, you're not going to be on the floor. It would have been wild. Like, Let's say they were running Kyrie, JR, LeBron, Wiggins, and Tristan. I don't think that works perfectly, but holy crap, would that have been fun?
0: Oh, yeah. It just would have been incredible to watch. It's a very difficult thing to talk about uh, just because it's impossible to know, but it's something I would have loved to have seen. You know, maybe they don't win a title without Kevin Love, but maybe they do with Andrew Wiggins and they're set for a little bit longer into the future. Yeah.
1: Anything else you want to discuss or player players or teams that NBA more centric people should keep an eye out moving forward whether we've discussed them or not?
0: Yeah, no, I would basically just keep an eye on UCLA. You'll get enough of the Pac-12 at this stage by watching them regularly. I would watch all of the ACC. It's just Insane right now in terms of how many prospects are there. Uh, the Big 12 has gotten better. I would say to continue to watch Kansas because, you know, Kansas has four guys that can end up getting drafted this year, even, honestly, and Josh Jackson, both the guards, in Frank Mason, Devontae Graham, as well as uh, Sviatoslav and Kailuk. And In that case, you'll also get guys like, you know, Jawan Evans, who's been really good. You'll get the Texas Kids. You'll get Jonathan Motley, who I think is turning himself into a legit NBA prospect. So, yeah, I would keep an eye on, like, those kind of situations. The Big East has been interesting. If you watch Villanova, you'll see college basketball's version of the Golden State death lineup. Whenever they play uh, Jalen Brunson, Josh Hart, Mikhail Bridges, you know, whoever they want to next to those guys on the wing. And then Eric Paschal at the five, who's like six foot six, 250 pound, like, guy who can attack off the dribble and do some stuff. Uh, so that'll be enough. And then, you know, Kentucky's always worth watching just because Kentucky has a million prospects. So I would keep an eye on Kentucky still.
1: (laughs) As always, thanks so much for taking time. Always a pleasure.
0: Yep. Absolutely. Danny. Happy to do it.
1: Thanks again to Sam Vecini for taking the time to come on. You can read him at the sporting news and you can also follow him on Twitter at Sam underscore Vecini. That's S A M underscore V E C E N I E. Love talking with Sam. I actually did his Game Theory podcast as well on a similar but different topic, talking about how the collective bargaining agreement affects college guys and and how that fits in. And I thought that was an interesting conversation, too, if you want to hear us talk about something different. And I I love talking with Sam. It has been a, a really fun year for Real Jam Radio, getting its footing in a way, just kind of reaching into a new new place. also really want to thank CLNS Radio for helping make that happen. They've been a great piece of support for the show growing and, you know, getting more advertisers and really becoming something that I've always loved to do, but can become a, a more functional part of everything instead of just being a passion project for me. And I really do appreciate that because it helps make so many other things really wonderful. And of course, thank Real GM Radio, or Real GM, particularly Chris Reyna. For all of their support, I mean, Real Jam has been with me since almost the beginning, since two thousand nine, and gave me an opportunity to podcast for the first time. And also, this show was the first time, you know, Nate Duncan ever podcasted, and a few other things. So, almost almost all of the good things that I have right now in writing and podcasting stem from from them and from that those kind of decisions. So, I really do appreciate that, and I appreciate all of you for listening. It's been A fun year, going to keep trying to expand the show and do different things next year. And as always, your feedback, good, bad, indifferent, is very important to doing that. So if there are things that I do that you like and you want me to do more, let me know. If there are things that you like less and you want me to do less, let me know that too. Because that's really the only way I can do it. Otherwise, I use my own tastes as a barometer and that's fine. I've been doing that for years. But... I do like that sort of input, and I will consider it. As I always say, I read everything and respond to what I can. Best way to do that is Danny LaRue, NBA at gmail.com. You can also reach out at, at danielarou on Twitter, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X, either way. And I, I do appreciate that. Also, still a couple days left. I'm going to try to do it around New Year's for the Sherry's Berries promotion. So you can either email me at that same email address or use the hashtag mybest. NBA gift or my worst MBA gift. And let me and let me know what your what your best and worst gifts are. You can also include stuff from the holidays this year. And the best things get Sherry's berries gift cards. So I will mention that here as well. You can also check them out at berries.com. So can go and the real GM is of course the promo code like it is almost everywhere. So excited to move into the new year. Gonna have a, a lot of great stuff. Already have the first podcast of the year lined up. It will be the continuation of the tier series, which seems like people have liked. I really enjoy putting it together, so I've actually started working on how I see the West and the East right now. Wanted to get it a little bit ready. That will be middle of next week is the current timeline. And so if you want to support the show, you can do a few different things. You can leave a rating, leave a review, subscribe, download every episode. That's particularly great for a show like this when the release date can change around. I People have asked me for consistency at points, but it it does depend on my own schedule, especially because at this point, I still edit the show myself, so it does depend a little bit on my own timing. Depending on interest and everything else, I may change that up, but for right now, that is what it is, and so we'll see. We'll see where that goes from here. The other thing you can do is check out our sponsors for this episode. That is Audible. I'm a huge fan of them. You go to www.audible.com slash try now, and you can check it out. I'm still in the process of listening to Trevor Noah's book, which is Board of Crime and is absolutely awesome. Still have some credits to use on there and in in the process of figuring out what I want to listen to. If any of you have any suggestions, you can let me know on Twitter, on Gmail, whatever you really want to do. Thanks so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day.